This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. America having its D-Day moment. First shipments of the coronavirus vaccine making a touchdown in many parts of the U.S. Could be the beginning of the end as the government's rolling out the biggest national vaccination campaign in history. Now that the Pfizer vaccine is out, Moderna up next to be reviewed for FDA approval. So how exactly do these different vaccines work inside our bodies? We will go north to see how our Canadian cousins are handling their vaccine rollouts. And the wealthy celebrities, the politically connected professional athletes, they are trying to pull strings to jump the vaccine line. A lot of people, including us, physically going to work still during the pandemic. One public health expert says many employers are doing a pretty bad job at protecting their workers from the virus. And the uh, temperature checks, the deep cleanings, not good enough, maybe even misleading. But first, we start with a history of vaccination campaigns. The cold storage is humming, the doses are ready, and the needles are out. The first Pfizer COVID vaccines have been administered now in the U.S., kicking off the largest national vaccination effort in this country's history. Since past his prologue, we'll look back at campaigns against diseases like polio to see what's in store for us. Dr. Howard Markell directs the Center for the History of Medicine at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. So, doctor, this is a pretty unprecedented time. Big moments for public health. Yeah, well, it's one of the great moments in the history of medicine. I mean, never before have we uh, experienced a newly emerging infectious disease and taken it all the way to a preventive vaccine in less than 12 months. Uh, I mean, that's a world's record. It's just stunning. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible moment. Let's uh, take a walk down history lane then, uh, because this is being billed as, as the most significant uh, national indeed, I guess, an international, really, uh, rollout for mass vaccinations since at least the 50s when uh, there was a mass vaccination for polio. Uh, if that is correct, uh, how did that one go back in the 50s? And are there lessons that we've learned from that? Well, it, it is the largest. That's not just hyperbole. Uh, because a lot more Americans, you know, not just children, when, once they're approved, but adults will take the uh, uh, COVID vaccine. Uh, the polio vaccine in 1955, specifically the salt polio vaccine, uh, underwent a year of a trial testing. That was done from 1954 to 1955. There were 1.8 million children in that trial. Can you imagine getting that many children for a test of a vaccine today? And when it was established to be safe, effective, and potent on April 12, 1955, there were six companies that the federal government had tapped to produce polio vaccine. And parents were literally, you know, shoving their kids to the head of the line because nobody wanted their child to get polio. It was a terrible, paralyzing, and even deadly disease. Um, so things went well, but a few weeks into it, they noticed that people who had gotten vaccine from made by the Cutter Laboratory Company in Berkeley, California, those batches were bad. In fact, they were contaminated with live virus. The, the salt vaccine is a formalin killed virus vaccine. And uh, among the people who got the Cutter version of the vaccine, some 40,000 people contracted polio. 
about 200 got some paralysis and 10 died. So they quickly pulled all those batches off the market. And the Surgeon General got involved. The Secretary of Health and Human Services lost her job. And uh, it was a big scandal that was quickly smoothed over. And within a matter of weeks, the lines began again. Can you imagine if, God forbid, that happened with the COVID vaccine? It would be over tomorrow. But the thing is, back then, is that people had, Americans had much greater faith, not only in their leaders, but also in scientists and doctors. Is there a simple explanation for where our vaccine hesitancy in some circles has come from? And and how long has it been building? Well, there isn't, sadly. Um, you know, there's been vaccine hesitancy since Edward Jenner first introduced his smallpox vaccine in 1796. But the anti-vaccination community or the vaccine hesitant community is not monolithic. Different people have different reasons. And in this particular pandemic, which is the most politicized pandemic ever in the history of medicine, there are political reasons. Some won't take a vaccine that the Trump administration sponsored. Others might not take a vaccine that the Biden administration sponsored. And of course, there are people who don't want it for uh, uh, illegitimate reasons. They think it will get them sick or cause flu or other problems. But I can assure you it's been well tested. Uh, The data has been scrutinized. But yet there are some critical questions unanswered. And and I know personally, because I'm in one of the, I'm actually in the Pfizer trial, and I know that if I ask, uh, provided I got the actual one and not the placebo, but if I were to ask, when do I need to do this again? A year, two years? The answer is, we don't know. If I also ask, by having this, am I no longer capable of transmitting COVID to somebody who is unvaccinated, again, the answer is we don't know. Yes, but while those are good questions, they don't obviate or prevent you from wanting to get a vaccine. Uh, We may need to take COVID vaccines every year like we do influenza, but that doesn't make it a bad vaccine or a dangerous vaccine. It just means that we may need to take it on a frequent basis. And we will learn more as we get more data. You know, don't forget, there's a reason why it's called novel coronavirus 19, because we've only started having experience with it this year. But look how much we've learned and how much we will continue to learn. Dr. Howard Markell, Center for History and Medicine, University of Michigan School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks. Before we get the shot, we should know what's being injected into our bodies. So let's ask what's being injected into our bodies. Dr. Gregory Poland directs the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic. Doctor, take us through how these new vaccines work, because they are different. You're right, Mike. I mean, this is really a unique vaccine. So for both Pfizer and mRNA, uh, I'm sorry, Moderna, what they've done is they've taken mRNA. That stands for messenger RNA. That's simply the blueprint for the spike protein on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So you inject that blueprint, that mRNA, into the body. It lasts a few hours translating that blueprint, that code, into the protein. The body thinks that protein is the whole virus and produces an immune response to it, making antibody that protects you against disease. Now, here comes the potential issue. Uh, Some people, you used an interesting word just before. You used the word unique. 
some people are going to hear unique and they're the ones who are going to go, yeah, that's pretty cool. It's a unique thing. It's brand new. Uh, I'm, I'm there. You know, give it to me. But other people are going to hear that word unique and think, I don't know if I want to have any kind of medical treatment that's unique. Yeah. I mean, each person is going to uh, make their decision for themselves. I would encourage people, follow the evidence. Make an evidence-based decision of the risks and the benefits. Not a fear-based decision. Not an emotional decision. Because the reality of it is, when you make a choice about this vaccine, you're, making a, you're very likely making a choice about your health, your life, or somebody you love or know. So take me through some of what we know, or if it's just making, I guess the sense that I have or that I've read is that if it's just making portions of the protein of the virus, it doesn't matter if that's in me because it's not the whole thing, right? You can't, you can't build the whole house if you've just got a couple of walls. Exactly. Exactly. This is, this is literally, as I say, the blueprint, the code for one teeny part of the virus. You cannot get infected by the vaccine. It, does, it cannot produce the vaccine from it. It doesn't last very long in your body, but the immune memory lasts so that if you were to get exposed to coronavirus in the future, we don't know how far into the future, but your body would recognize it and would react in building protective antibodies to protect you. And you just actually anticipated the, my next question. You know, if I go in and I get a, a flu shot and I say to my doctor, when do I need to come back and do it again? Uh, he'll say next year. If I get a tetanus shot, he'll likely say probably 10 years unless, you know, you have a major right. accident and they'll give you a booster. If I get the two requisite doses of either the Pfizer or Moderna uh, shots and I ask the uh, doctor, when do I need to do this again? The answer right now is we don't know. Truthful answer is we don't know yet. So uh, every week we get more and more data on that. We know that there are antibody studies out to three plus months now, and we'll keep building and building. Remember that in the context of a pandemic, taking by the end of this an estimate of one out of every 700 American lives that we're flying this airplane while we're building it. Now, that doesn't mean shortcuts are being taken, but it does mean that when we talk anything long-term, long-term is not a phrase we can use yet. We've only known about this virus for 11-ish uh, months or so. So as we immunize more and more people and follow them over time, we'll have better and better estimates of how quickly does immunity wane and in whom. Dr. Gregory Poland directs the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic. Canada joins the U.S. and U.K. today in becoming the third Western country to start administering the COVID vaccine. And because it's Canada, and they tend to do things in a much more orderly and friendly manner than we do things down here, we thought it made sense to check in north of the border to learn more about their vaccine distribution plans. So like us, the frontline medical workers, they get inoculations first. But what about after that? Amir Adaran, both a scientist and a litigator, professor of law and epidemiology at the University of Ottawa. So your country again, starting with the frontline workers first. But what's next? How far down the list has your government gone? 
Our government is very, very far behind yours when it comes to vaccination, which makes me tremendously sad as somebody who is both American, uh, Californian originally, and Canadian. We are assured of very little vaccine supply compared to the United States. Uh, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, uh, his government came out and said that we can expect to receive in Canada 6 million doses by March. Now, that would be enough to vaccinate 3 million Canadians, not even a tenth of the population of the country, by March. In contrast, the U.S. is hoping to have at least 100 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine and probably a similar number again, although it hasn't been announced, of the Moderna vaccine. And I imagine by then there will also be the AstraZeneca vaccine available. The U.S. is going to rip past Canada um, in, in vaccination, and that poses quite a difficulty north of the border. Well, I, I have to admit, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat shocked. I, I thought that Canada would, would have its house in order because God knows we've done a terrible job in the U.S., as I'm sure you know, in containing the virus and doing contact tracing and even getting timely tests to people who have uh, possible COVID. So uh, what is going so wrong? Why is it going so wrong in Canada? Well, Canada... Let's take a step back. You're right. The population of Canada and California, it's almost exactly the same. Canada has had fewer deaths, way fewer than the United States. I mean, the United States is closing in on 300,000. You know, we're in the range of 13,000 in Canada. But if you multiply by the size, uh, the population, if you adjust it per capita, Canada would have somewhere in the range of 120,000 deaths if it were the United States size which is to say that we're not doing very well either. And in a contest between Canada and the United States of which country is doing better, it's sort of like Snow White saying to her seven dwarves, now which of you is the tallest? <laughs> it, you know, neither is, is really very good. I mean, the United States has been an abysmal failure, the worst in the world on COVID, as you well know. Um, and it should be compared to places like Australia, where there have not been any zero cases of COVID in major population centers for weeks. Zero. You know, they, they are triumphing at this. And it, it's not possible for the United States and Canada to be thought of as advanced countries when that's what the competition looks like. It is interesting, though. Part of Canada has done in Australia, and that's our, our Atlantic side, the Atlantic provinces of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland, have very, very little COVID. They have closed their borders quite tightly to unnecessary travel, and it's paid off for them. It's something that the United States should be looking at internally to wall off highly affected states from less affected ones. What explains the lack of doses for for you guys that, that is your worry not having enough because there was an uproar here out of the story of the new york times that said you know the trump administration had ability to buy even more pfizer doses and, and and didn't and they blew it didn't they i mean they should have bought whatever they could uh and if they had surplus well you can always donate the surplus to another country that needs it god knows there would be plenty of eager takers for that offer 
The United States has not done a good job in vaccine procurement, but it has done a much better job than Canada. Canada simply left it too late. Plus, of course, Canada does not have the scientific establishment that the United States does. I mean, I did my science at Berkeley and Caltech, and, and there is simply no comparison between the scientific establishment in the United States and Canada. And while the United States does have some excellent scientists in government, hats off to Tony Fauci, my goodness, wonderful man, very knowledgeable, very ethical. In Canada, we do not have scientific leadership like that in government. And, and so science is often thrown to the curb as politicians make decisions and deals on critical things like vaccination. And then they, of course, get it wrong. Amir Adaran, both a scientist and a litigator, professor of law and epidemiology, University of Ottawa. The rich and famous may be lurking around trying to cut the line and getting the coronavirus vaccine. Plus, one public health expert claims American workplaces are not doing a good job protecting workers from the coronavirus. We'll be back after this short break. You're listening to Coronavirus Daily on Radio.com. Reports over the weekend had Trump administration staffers, aides, among the very first to be vaccinated against the coronavirus. President Trump himself seemed to walk that back, but it got us to thinking, what's to stop a wealthy person from paying his or her own way to the front of the line? What about celebrities, professional athletes using their influence? Ruth Faden, founder of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. Ruth, uh, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So uh, I, I can't help thinking, I mean, for example, we're in, in Los Angeles, uh, a lot of big, famous institutions yep. here. Uh, there's one hospital, won't mention the name, Cedars-Sinai, that has on its buildings the names of some very famous people that gave lots of money yeah. to have their names on it. And something makes me think that if that person or persons drives up in, of course, a chauffeur-driven you know, car or limo mm-hmm. with their family and says, you know, we're not going to wait until June. We kind of want our entire family vaccinated now. Are they really going to be told no? Well, they really should be told no. You're asking the question of whether they will be. And let me just add that it's not just in Los Angeles where there are names of very wealthy and important donors uh, on the buildings of medical institutions. It's all over the country. And that's only a piece of it and, frankly, not the part that worries me the most. Uh, Basically, we've got two threats to the uh, fairness of the way in which vaccines will be distributed in this country. One is uh, deep worry and understandable worry on the part of some people of color and some poor people and some other groups, socially situated groups that have been that have good reason for distrusting institutions that they are not going to be treated fairly. They're either going to be exploited or they're going to be denied. uh, and, And it's a very serious concern. The other source of worry and concern about inequities or unfairness has to do with privilege and power. And that's what you're getting at, right? Absolutely. So privilege and power threatens the distribution and access of all the valued goods in society. We know that people who are well-connected, who have a lot of advantages, social and political, and who have a lot of power, are somehow able to secure for themselves what the rest of us have great difficulty securing. And we have seen this in this pandemic as well. Uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani's much uh, now discussed acknowledgement that the treatment that he received was probably because he was quote unquote a celebrity and a better than president. 
is just an illustration. That was a therapy. Now we're talking about vaccines. This is a uh, this is a threat in the U.S. It's a threat globally. One of the most important uh, things that the distribution mechanisms that are being established around the country can do is uh, put up guardrails, if you like, fences around access to supply, and at the same time, be completely transparent about the distribution of that vaccine. So on the one hand, it makes totally good sense for some political leaders, the president of the United States, if he had not had a documented case of COVID-19 disease in the past three months, to receive vaccine, even if the president of the United States was not also eligible because of the person's age. So let's go to President-elect Biden. He is a high priority group because he is an older American, but he's also going to be the leader of the free world and the president of the United States. So there are good arguments that can be put forward that have to do with maintaining essentially civil order and the functioning of our government to include some political leaders within a special category of folks who should receive vaccine kind of orthogonally to the other priority groups that are identified. But yeah, it's a it's a, a continuity of government kind of thing. Yeah, it's, a, but it's exactly a continuity to, of government. To go but back to what to you said, public, I'm sorry. No, no, just because we're going to run out of time. But I, just to go back to what you said about the, the guardrails that hopefully yeah. are going up, have you seen them going up? There's a lot of planning yet to do this, we realize, as we ask questions about who's going to get it when, but... Have you seen this start to be outlined? So my understanding is, and we don't have enough of this yet, that in the contracts that are being signed between uh, the federal government and the various entities that are receiving vaccine, there is a commitment being required that the entities receiving the vaccine follow the guidelines of the state in which the vaccine is being distributed in terms of priority groups. We need to understand better the extent to which that's happening. We need full transparency about who is going to be determined to be an essential worker, both inside of government, but also in the private sector. We've heard, for example, titans of of financial institutions wanting to say that their leadership and their boards of directors are essential to the running of the American economy. That is not what is meant by an essential worker for prioritizing a vaccine. We have to be very careful and we have to be as transparent as possible because honestly, the threat to people's confidence in this vaccine vaccination program really depends on it. So somebody like Kim Kardashian would not be an essential worker. No, she would not. Right? <laughs> I, I, I cannot think of any world in which that would be the case, nor can I envision a world in which uh, celebrities of any sort would constitute uh, an essential worker category. I'm much more worried about people who are keeping our buses running and our subway systems running and our food systems running who don't have any choice but to work outside the home and who cannot physically distance, who cannot broadcast their whatever stuff and do their podcasts from their you know gorgeous home studios, right? Yeah. Uh, those are the people who are essential workers who should be well above right, any in any queue yeah. in which we would put at, you know, professional athletes, celebrities uh, of any stripe. Ruth Faden, founder of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. Ruth, thanks.
Many people are still working from home as the pandemic continues, but there are still a good number of workers who are still reporting to their workplace or job site or office. We've seen workplace COVID-19 rules and guidelines put in place everywhere, but do they even work? Dr. Teresa Sweets, associate teaching professor at Drexel's Dornsife School of Public Health, tells KYW's Matt Leon things like temperature checks and deep cleaning may not be as effective as we once thought. So this is kind of a sweeping question and every workplace is different. But overall, how effective do you think we've been in this country at being smart about COVID in the workplace? I don't think we've been very smart about it. No. In particular, in workplaces where uh, workers have to be close together while working, I'm thinking, for example, early on, the outbreaks that occurred in meatpacking facilities uh, where workers are, you know, essentially shoulder to shoulder, and obviously there were outbreaks. I think that also in some workplaces, I've heard anecdotally from people in those workplaces that, you know, mask usage is not what it should be. People are getting close, working close together, essentially in each other's space. Um, and, and considering the numbers of cases that we have in the community, certainly now, but, you know, that's just not really a safe thing to do. Have we honed, on, honed in on what's most important in the workplace? Um, and like I said, there's the office, there is if you work in a store, there's if you work in a factory, every thing is different. But obviously, we're talking mask, social distance, and, and hand washing. But, but past that, what else are the important things? So also important is, is going to be airflow and air exchange. You know, if you're working in an older building in particular that uh, perhaps doesn't have good air exchange, then any virus that is in the air could potentially stay in the air for a period of time. But that's something that you know all buildings probably have to be looked at for that and and that is that's a complicated issue you know how much airflow how many air exchanges per hour do you need in order to to really be i guess safer um so that those those airborne viral particles don't remain suspended in the air how effective it seems like a, a staple of a lot of places is deep cleaning that they'll maybe after a positive test or maybe just as part of their regular routine. Is that as effective as we want it to be? Well, it certainly isn't wrong to do. You know, we, we talk about fomite transmission with um, all, all respiratory viruses. Um, certainly, you know, that helps with something like flu or the common cold. Um, does it help with COVID? It seems like the research is showing that while fomite transmission is definitely can occur, it is not as important as droplets and, and airborne transmission is what we're seeing. But that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done. It just means that perhaps it's not as worrisome of an issue as perhaps it once was. You talked at the beginning about places that aren't doing a good job. How do we fix that? Places that like you said, are working close together, stuff like that. What do you want to see happen? So one of the first things I want to see happen is that, that people wear the correct kind of mask correctly, all right? You know, there's, you need to have, obviously we can't use the, the N95 masks because they're, you know, in limited supply for healthcare workers. 
But, you know, you need to have a, a cloth mask with multiple layers, two to three layers, if possible, even perhaps a layer of silk in there or poly or some kind of satin. That in combination with cotton seems to work really well in, in the studies that I've, lo- I've looked at. And you need to wear it correctly. I can't tell you how many times I see people with it really loose on their face. So it's dropping below their nose or they're wearing it under their nose. And I mean, it's just common sense. Think about this. When you go, when you take a COVID test, where are they sticking that thing up to, to take, to get the virus? They're sticking it up your nose. So obviously people have virus in their nose if they're infected. It just, um, and so we need to be, I think much more stringent on, again, the type of mask people are wearing and how they're wearing them. And then don't force people to work shoulder to shoulder. And in fact, don't allow them to work shoulder to shoulder. Try to distance them as much as possible. Are there any rules that we have seen in wide circulation that in retrospect have proven to not be that important? Something that maybe was stressed early in the pandemic? Yeah. And and I don't say this from a... a careless standpoint just as we've learned more and all of a sudden we're like ah, you know what we don't really need to do that that's not that's not going to help us as much as we thought it at the beginning well i guess the one thing that comes to my mind certainly is taking uh people's temperatures before they're allowed in the building you know definitely it will weed out those folks that have fevers because they have covid um, but as we know, there are a lot of people that have this disease are in, in fact infectious, um, but they're, um, they either don't have a fever, maybe have other symptoms. They've lost their sense of smell or taste, but never had a fever. We've heard a lot of those cases. But also we know that there are people who are either pre-symptomatic, meaning they'll develop a fever tomorrow or the next day, and right now they're infectious, or even we know there are a lot of people that are actually asymptomatic, that they can shed the virus and have no signs of it. And so while fever is one sign of the disease, it's not the only one. And since there are so many people that have the disease and don't have a fever, if you just rely on that, you're gonna miss a lot of people. And, and certainly I could see it giving um, organizations a false sense of security. Thanks for listening. You can find us on the radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.